and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, the TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's finished his rocky road and fresh off his backdoor escape from the house of a CIA agent, it's John McMahon. This is a very convoluted introduction, but I support it. And you know what? I, I hope one day in my life to make a rocky road escape from a CIA house. Feels right. Yeah. So, Danielle, we're not alone today. We have a very no. special guest with us. So, also joining us on the other line, he survived an underpass party with Wheatley High School. It's Mike Rensink. Mike, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, Welcome. we are very excited. Um, as I think our most dedicated listener, more so than Keller, at least, uh, that's for sure. And somebody who compiled the dossier of dossiers. We're very excited to have you on the episode itself. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to it. And John, what episode are the three of us discussing today? Danielle, thank you for asking. It is American Season 3, Episode 5, Selang Pass, directed by Kevin Dowling, written by Stephen Schiff, and you, I think, have an IMDb summary for us. Yes, the IMDb episode summary for Season 3, Episode 5 is... Philip juggles the many women in his life while Elizabeth takes drastic measures to complete a mission. Stan asserts a plan to save Nina with an unlikely ally. I just want to comment on the Philip juggling thing. I don't know. I didn't realize this until after looking some stuff about this episode, but in this episode, Philip is James. He is Clark and he is Scott, right? He is all three of his main disguises thus far in the show. Oh, wow. I think I missed the Scott part of Philip. Yeah. Yeah, the one scene with Yusuf. Right, right. I was just like, oh, it's just Philip being another dirtbag. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's his, like, classy disguise. I, I have to say, I'm very jealous of his Scott Berklin look. I'm sorry. They're all dirtbags. <laughs> <laughs> like... That's just where I'm at. <laughs> ah, fair enough. All right. So I think what we want to do is use a line that Gabriel gives to Philip as a bit of a jumping off place to talk about the many children and the many familial relationships at stake in this episode. So let me let me give the line that Gabriel gives to Philip. And then, uh, Mike, I'm interested in your response to how this line is working in this episode. So this is Gabriel to Philip, quote, it's one of the ironies of this work that so many lives depend upon one man's relationship with an adolescent girl, end quote. So how did you see that as kind of doing some framing work for the episode? Yeah, well, the first thing that I mean, it was obvious, but it struck me was that you could obviously apply that to either Kimmy or Paige. Yeah. Gabriel means it to talk about Kimberly, um, but Philip's relationship to Paige is also very front and center as is Elizabeth's relationship to Paige and how that's going to play out. You could certainly argue that's going to be more crucial for their future and for the future of you know what they're doing in the country than whatever Philip is doing with Kimberly. Yeah. I, th- that, I think Mike, the way that you, the way that you phrased that really, sh- really struck a chord with me because I think the fact that there's this sort of double meaning that it's not that Gabriel's unaware that there's all this stuff going on with Paige, but like that line doesn't seem to be intended to to talk about Paige, and yet it's so applicable to the tension that's sort of circulating around her. 
It, it is. And it's also almost as if that could be the thesis statement for the entire project of the Americans in the first place, right? <laughs> if it's family as nation, questions of familial lo- loyalty with regards to nationalism or loyalty to nation, right? The kind of model of the family and power dynamics or yeah. secrecy or struggles within as some sort of allegory for, uh, for nations and politics and such. Like, that episode is just as equally, um, or that quote is just as equally, I think, applicable across all of those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I yeah i I wasn't thinking about this as like the thesis statement for like the entire show, just this episode. But I think you're right about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it also raises a question about this is uh, an episode that is titled Selang Pass. So this is the uh, tunnel between Afghanistan and Pakistan where a bunch of Soviet troops are killed um, in the war. And we have Philip listening to the BBC radio report about this um, Mm -hmm. early in the episode. That's the only time it comes up directly. It's indirectly, obviously hanging over his interaction with Youssef. So it just struck me that there's this episode title that is about, you know, this like catastrophe uh, from the Soviet perspective in, um, in Afghanistan. And yet the main set piece of the episode is this long extended scene between Philip as James and Kimmy, right? So you have like the geopolitical title and then the centerpiece of the episode is this like very like deep interpersonal slash fucked up grooming situation. Yeah, and uh, a historical event that was the you know, producers of the show felt was important enough that they actually fudged the timeline to include it here, which they don't usually do. They're usually quite meticulous about only putting in stuff that's happening at the exact date the episode's supposed to be happening. But yeah, this episode takes place in mid-December, but the Slang Pass disaster was in the beginning of November, so they actually moved it around for artistic reasons to put it in this episode. Yeah, that is like very rare and distinct for sure for the show. Also, like, great note. I had no <laughs> idea, I, you know, as you know, know nothing about this time period because we never reached it in high school uh, history classes. <laughs> and so I, like, m- my knowledge of this time period is, like, really spotty. So I never would have picked that up. So I, I may have a spreadsheet that tracks all the episodes <laughs> of the Americans, <laughs> what real-life date they took place in with, like, all the clues about when they took place. Are you like a page off page author on the uh, fandom wiki for the Americans? Uh, I am not, but I've, okay. I've used the wiki a good amount. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're really good about some of the historical stuff and about like this hockey game took place on this day is like to tell where the where the episode right. is. And like in, yeah, so in this episode, you know, Gabriel references the Boland Amendment, which was passed by the House of Representatives on December eighth of nineteen eighty two. And then we have Kimmy, when she talks to Jim, she tells him she wants to meet at her house on the 11th. So that's that's the exact date. December 11th of 82 is when the episode ends. And so, yeah, it's one of the rare episodes where you can actually pin it down to an exact day. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. This appeals, I think, to like a part of Danielle's fan brain. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Well, I was just about to be, I was about to be like, I'm going to, well, not about to be, I'm going to do it, which is like, Part of at the end of Captain America, the first Avenger, they like use, uh, they put the radio play of a baseball game that happened like before Captain America, who's obviously played by Chris Evans, like goes under. Um, And the like idea is that they play the sort of like anachronistic 
or they, they like mess up the timeline of the game as a way to test whether or not like Steve Rogers as Captain America has like his intelligence has been preserved when he's like been in ice. So there's like something about this, about Mike, about your spreadsheet and about sort of like thinking through the like specifics of this that are like triangulating and testing us. And I really like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a a long time since a Steve Rogers, Captain America, Chris Evans uh, reference on here. I failed in my job as as host co-host of this podcast <laughs> endeavor. All right, so let's talk about maybe what happened on December eleventh, nineteen eighty-two, in the Breland household. So, I mean, there are so many places to go with this Kimmy and James meeting. There, they have several conversations, several different styles of interaction. So, where Mike would you like to begin in thinking about Kimmy James and this long final scene at Kimmy's house? Yeah, I guess the thing that struck me the most was all of the parallels between her and between Paige. Yeah. Um, you know, Philip earlier in the episode gets very angry when Elizabeth tries to make those parallels and says they're not the same at all. Um, but, you know, between Philip showing up with his cowboy boots, mm-hmm. which we saw way back in the pilot of the yeah. show, mm-hmm. when Philip took Paige out shopping and, you know, and was trying on cowboy boots um, and then getting very angry when an older man tried to hit on page in that episode. Yep. Um, and then the food fight, which makes you think back to also in the pilot, there was him playing around with ice cream with his kids. And then I think later in season one, he and page were throwing grapes at each other at uh-huh. one point. Yeah. yeah. These are, these so are the points we all hit. We hit in our pre-show meeting, but when it was just Daniel, I, this is great. Yeah. This is yeah. awesome. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, he keeps saying, no, it's not the same. It's not the same, but yeah, it seems like he's almost going into dad mode with Kimmy as a way to, I don't know, maybe a way to relate to her, but a way that makes him feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, like both of those things, right? Like figuring out how to relate to like a 15 or 16 year old and also like how to be, how to, for him to step outside of the discomfort he has around the, like the grooming of it all. Um, I think you're right that like dad mode allows him to do that. And then also kind of like makes it even a little bit grosser. And it heightens the tension when Kimmy, in the course of narrating her own life and her relationship to her dad and stepmom, says something to the effect of, I don't even know where they are. They're never home. I wouldn't be that surprised if my dad had another family. It actually would explain a lot. She says something to that extent, which, of (laughs) course, is Paige's very explicit concern about, or that is almost Paige's explicit concern about what's going on with Philip, right? She thinks Philip's having an affair. She thought that Elizabeth was having an affair back in season one, right? And is constantly worried about, like, where are my parents? Why are they sneaking around? Why are they never home? Why are they never there at night? Like all of these sorts of questions. And so the, the camera work is interesting in the scene on the porch when they're smoking the joint between the two of them. And most of it's shot in like, just kind of very standard, like, almost head on with each, with each character. Then a couple of times they pull back to show like the broader kind of like portico or whatever that they're standing on. And I thought that the kind of staging of the, of the conversation between the two of them was working really effectively with the dialogue. Yeah. And I would just say, I just to add to that, I think the other thing just in terms of the like, uh, like page Philip page being afraid that like, this is, what's going on in her house. Like it is what's going on in her house. Right. So like she's got it right. And so the fact that Kimmy is 
articulating a kind of anxiety that like, it's at least I think clear to Philip that Paige has stumbled upon, even though she's not explaining it exactly in the way that it's being experienced by her parents. Like there's something about the, the like about the parallels in this situation that I think is like demonstrating a kind of like, uh, like a tight wire or a tightrope that, that like Philip and Elizabeth are walking with regard to Paige. Like, I think that there's something about seeing Kimmy being able to be like, who knows my dad could have another family. And knowing that Paige has those anxieties that like, like, amplifies the urgency of it maybe is is what i'm trying to get at yeah and this is at least for me the first episode this season where i can more see elizabeth's side of the bringing page in i think the argument that she has with philip in the bathroom when she makes the point that like hey look how kimmy turned out kimmy has no idea what her father really does and look what it's done to her is a reasonable point and i think up till now we've kind of as an audience been put more on philip's side and saying you know why or why would you really want to bring Paige into this life where you're, you know, putting women in suitcases and all this stuff. But now this episode, it's like, well, maybe Elizabeth's not entirely wrong. Yeah. And like the, that line, like, I don't, I think this is from like, I, I can't remember if it's this episode or the episode before, like, I don't want her to be putting people in bags or to be put in a bag. Right. Like that's, I understand that, but I think Mike, you're right that there's like, there's a bit more meat on the bone of Elizabeth's argument in this episode than there has been until now. All of this is happening in the context of Philip as James succeeding at his mission, right? Like he gets Kimmy to smoke enough weed to pass out on the couch, right? Instead of like watching a documentary after their Jiffy Pop fight, which is like, that is not only a call back to the page throwing of the graves, but it's Mm -hmm. also like something you can imagine him doing with Henry. Right. So it's like, it's actually, it's aging Kimmy even further down in the interaction or like further exacerbating the like parent child weird dynamic that's going on. But anyway, so Kimmy falls asleep and Philip like extremely effective at, okay, I'm going in here. I'm finding the briefcase. I'm taking the coat. I'm taking measurements. I have this cool ass, like back of this index card in my wallet that is a actually measuring stuff. Like he's very effective and he, this is something that kind of, he will increasing, I mean, has, and will increasingly become like the tension that he feels between being really fucking good at being a spy and how terrible he feels about it. Right. Yeah, again, going back to the conversation with Gabriel, where he tells him that, he says, mm-hmm. you're the best, there's nobody better. Yeah. And yeah, on the one hand, it's incredibly man- manipulative, but on the yes. other hand, he's not wrong. Well, and I think the other thing here that's maybe worth mentioning is that in the last couple of episodes, there are these car chases, there's like pretty intense action. And here, like the tension or the action, like is around Philip taking those pictures and first of all, I love a spy camera. I just, I love it so much. You know my, that, yeah. It's my favorite form of spycraft, like a little camera that like <laughs> clicks this way, that clicks like horizontally. There's something like yeah. very Mission Impossible about that. And that, by the way, is an actual 80s Soviet spy camera that they got for the production. Oh, Mike, you're killing it with the details. <laughs> Honestly, that makes me so happy. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Um, I think like, it's also 
maybe this is a good place to think a little bit about sort of like some of not just Philip's reservations around the fact that like this person is young and that like the, maybe the creepiness level of it, but also again, coming back to this parallel with Paige, this sort of like question around what it would actually mean for her to go through the training as, as an issue that I think comes up most explicitly in the conversation that Philip and Elizabeth have at the end of the episode, but seems to be sort of like percolating before that. Right. Because we go from, you know, towards the end of the scene with Kimmy, he picks her up as if he was, as if she was like a four or five year old kid and takes her to bed, like arm across the shoulder, like under her legs, whatever. Um, And that gets followed by these like multiple flashbacks that Philip has to having sex with what, two women, three women and one man, right. Mm -hmm. As part of his training. So like it's his coming of age versus the, and clearly he has some hangups or something trauma like potentially about that and him being like, well, this is what I would hypothetically be doing to Kimmy if we were to have sex. But also, like, it's interesting that you read that as him picking her up, like, in a fatherly manner, because I I saw that as, like, a husband carrying a wife across a threshold and, like, laying her on the bed. Even though that's not his intention, I think, like, that interpretation is open for us. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and, and then, like, reinforced by the sort of, like, trauma flashbacks that we see. Right. Well, and it also, for me, maybe think back to the first scene of the episode when Martha was talking to Clark about the little girl. And it's like, wouldn't you like her to come and throw her arms around you when you get home? And then by the end of the episode, Kimmy's doing the same thing. It's even more creepy. I hate all of it. I mean, and Philip, like, saved by the fact, like, from having to make a decision one way or the other by... Isaac Breland and uh, his wife coming home and he asks, you know, as he says, as he says to, uh, to Elizabeth, like I had to run out of there like a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then, and, and also like a teenager, he shows up stoned to his own house. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, are you stoned? <laughs> like, it was my second favorite line of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause we know Elizabeth likes to blast some cigs when she's stressed, but like, we don't know right. what her relationship to bot is. Well, I was just going to say also, I, the thing that struck me about that comment was that oftentimes they are in situations that require them to drink or require them to smoke. But like, obviously Philip and Elizabeth are, are professionals. And, and for the most part, we don't see them being drunk or like exhibiting like the behaviors of someone drunk or stoned. So like to get that, are you stoned question was like, did you like take a step too far? Or like, have you like lost yourself in this a little bit? Right. I was thinking at the end of the episode, it would have been a lot less troubling if we instead of the flashbacks we got, if we'd gotten flashbacks of Philip learning to do drugs and drink, because there had to be training for that too. Right. That yeah. It's been, I'm sure he didn't come to America having never smoked pot before, but that would probably a more pleasant training yeah. memory than the one he actually had. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Philip, like he tried to do a Bill Clinton and not inhale, but there's, you know, there's limited ability to actually uh, enact that in one's life. That conversation um, between the two of them at the end though, is, you know, the, realist and connection that they've actually had with one another, potentially this entire third season, right? At yeah. least like there's 
a tender honesty as opposed to like the brutal confrontational honesty that's been their usual emotional mode throughout the season. And it's around this, you know, this training, sexual training, quote unquote, for, for Philip, which of course calls to mind the fact that like Elizabeth was sexually assaulted as, you know, by one of her training officers, which we find out, you know, in that very first episode of the show. So like there's this kind of shared bonding around right sexual trauma inflicted upon them and to varying degrees as part of their training that like is kind of carrying through and potentially reconnecting them at the end of the episode right even though philip gives the brutal line in a different way that sometimes he does have to kind of make it real with her that to me was like pure philip because he doesn't seem that he is really capable of lying to Elizabeth. Like as much as he wants to, sometimes I think he's often like as honest as, as he can be with Elizabeth. And when he's not being honest with her, like around the page stuff, sort of in the last couple of episodes, you see it sort of weighing on him. Right. I also think Philip is at his most honest and vulnerable when he's stroking Elizabeth's face. (laughs) Whom's among us? Like, who would not be, like, vulnerable in that scenario? His hair's a little bit longer as Philip in this episode. Like, Philip needs to go go with Stan to the barbershop to get some, like, very prim and proper haircuts, I think. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting, the the dynamic between them this season. Because, yeah, there's been a lot of conflict, like you said. But it doesn't feel the same as, like, season one when there was a lot of... Their relationship was kind of very on and off. And it wasn't sure whether they were going to actually stay together. And this season, it feels more like there's this layer of conflict on top, but there is still the love and the commitment underneath that comes out, you know, at the end of this episode, it came out in the tooth extraction a couple Mm -hmm. episodes back, which I think was another very intimate marital scene. So it's like, yeah, they have this unresolved issue that they can't agree on, but it doesn't feel like the marriage is about to break apart necessarily the way that it did in season one, at least not to me. Which is a which is a little bit kind of walking back, kind of what we were saying earlier about Gabriel's line, because in the first season, right, the conflict is over. Philip is kind of ready to defect and be like, "Let's just stay here and we're done with this." And you know, that was perhaps the source, one of the sources of the potentially more kind of existential stakes of their relationship. Whereas here, like the life of one adolescent girl, Paige doesn't necessarily rise to the same kind of emotional stakes as the Phillips kind of ready to defect and just stay in the U S or they, and, or they have built more emotional kind of genuineness since season one to this point. So that that kind of existential to their relationship conflict doesn't necessarily feel quite so threatening. Yeah. Instead of, I mean, season one, it was like, are they going to make this fake marriage a real marriage or not? Mm Mm-hmm. And at various points, one or the other of them wanted to or didn't want to. And now here it feels more like, okay, they have a real marriage and real married couples fight sometimes and sometimes very seriously. And sometimes it can't be resolved right away, but they are, they feel like a real married couple having a fight, not a fake married couple having a fight. Well, yeah. And I think like to sort of maybe marry both of your points. um, Good time, Daniel. (laughs) I try. I actually didn't try at all. Um, but to marry both of those points, I think that like the goal for both of them to, 
at least in in the broadest sense, is the same, right? Like they are trying to support the state, Soviet ideology, blah, 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 blah. And the tactics through which they are willing to engage in order to do so is part of what's different. Like in the first season, like Philip is ready to just like be an American. And I think he's not there anymore. And part of what makes him not there anymore is is the relationship with Elizabeth. I think like that's an important factor. But, like, and they are both, like, there for, quote-unquote, the mission, but the extent to which they are willing to, like, manipulate those they love for the mission is all, is, like, that's the, like, that's the source of the conflict, not necessarily, like, the mission itself. And the mission being, like, I don't know, supporting the Soviet, like, presence in America, not, like turning page into an agent something 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 means to an end something something (laughs) we did machiavelli in the last cave my brain is like still a little bit there (laughs) i've also been writing about affective solidarity all morning and this is like part of my part of my argument is about the like the the orientation towards a particular goal and i think philip and elizabeth are oriented towards the same goal but they evaluate that goal differently and that is part of what creates the tension but it's not it just because there's like some division between them doesn't mean that there is uh the chance for it to fully split them apart are they oriented towards the same goal i think if we think about it in terms of like maintain Soviet power, then yes. I think when we start to get more specific, that's when it starts to get Mm. more complicated. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think there's a a level upon which we can say yes. And then like, that is actually like, but there's a much more complicated way to understand it. And that is my forthcoming book in (laughs) three minutes. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Uh, I know you do. Any other thoughts about, I mean, maybe even earlier in the episode, the Paige and Philip Mall scene where, so Philip is, as we pointed out last episode, is even does at one point, this episode is kind of like playfully making fun of Kimmy, right? In various points. And right. here we got the reverse of that from Paige, right? Paige is like, oh, dad, you have terrible taste or whatever it is that she says. Are your taste as ridiculous as they are? Uh, going to buy some dresses. Although Philip then does end up getting a good dress in the end. I mean, whether it's a good dress, debatable. A good dress from Paige's perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's certainly a traditional dress for a baptism, like a white, lacy, that's what I would expect a baptism dress to look like. In my brain, baptisms only happen for babies, so this was like a whole thing that was confusing to me. <laughs> Danielle, if you were going to go through an adult baptism, what kind of dress would you Absolutely. Reject the premise of the question. I was baptized as a baby, but I like didn't get to choose my dress, and I'm pretty right. sure we all wore the same dress. That makes sense. Good chance it was white and lacy, so. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, the, so, the, the second dress Philip pulls out, like my wife's comment was that it, lo- it looks like a couch. <laughs> pretty bad it's true 80s couch vibes from that yeah dress. yeah yeah for sure but john you had an actual question for us not just me ranting about baptisms sure well i guess i'm thinking that you know i mean mike i think you are right to point out the call back to the first episode where um where 
Philip is there with Paige shopping and he gets the cowboy boots and sees an adult man hitting on a teenage, early teenage or mid teenage uh, year old girl and goes to beat him up at the end of the episode. Right. So it's the like by transitive property, Philip has to beat himself up in some way for what he's doing with or to Kimmy. Which he kind of is, right? Like, mm-hmm. at least emotionally or psychically anyway. Like, we sort of see him doing that. Um, yeah, no, the parallels between Paige and Kimmy are sort of, like, all over this episode. For me, it is deeply uncomfortable. But also, I think, like, being able to think through, like, Philip's relationship to to Paige vis-a-vis what's going on with Kimmy. But also Philip's relationship to Kimmy vis-a-vis what's going on with Paige, like illustrates not only the parallels between them, but also sort of like the, um, like some of the challenges that each of them pose to Philip, either Philip as parent or Philip as potential lover. Weird. (laughs) Gross. We also get some comments from Stan about parenting in this episode. So him and Philip are like tossing back some Miller high lives. Great. Great production design. The champagne of beers. The champagne of beers. Yeah. Well, um, you, you notice there's one more empty bottle in front of Stan than there is in front of Philip. I did. Weird. Stan loves beer, right? Like this is, you know, uh, this is canon uh, for sure in the Americans. <laughs> and, you know, they're talking about Tori asking out Stan on a date, calling the FBI to ask him out on the oh date, which I have some questions about for Danielle uh, later on in the episode. And, right. We get this line from Stan that he doesn't get Matthew. He's something something to the effect of he investigates mysteries and is like looking into people and figuring out people as his job. And by Stan's telling, he's quite good at it. Obviously, the official position of not quite great books is a little bit different than Stan's kind of self position. <laughs> but there's this contrast between he feels like he knows all of these people through his investigations, and then he doesn't get or doesn't know anything about Matthew himself. Just stood out to me as something that is in a lower key way at work with regards to Paige, right? Because both. Mm-hmm. Philip and Elizabeth miss something key about Paige, even as they're trying to manipulate her in various ways towards the ends they each want for Paige. I mean, just witness the preceding um, episode, right, or where there's the announcement that Paige wants to be baptized. Takes them both totally by surprise, right? So there's a certain level at which they don't get Paige, much like Stan doesn't get uh, Matthew even as they're all like engaged in their various spy craft or counter spy craft. Yeah. And in all, in all the cases, Philip and Elizabeth, Isaac Breland and Stan, it's absence. That's the real culprit mm-hmm. yeah. that's causing the problem. And Stan talks about it, how he was, you know, he was gone for three years undercover. I love the look on Philip's face. You're kind of like, Oh, three years. That's cute. You know, it's, <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, it's just, so all of them, they just haven't been around and they've just missed key parts of their children growing up and turning into young adults into different people. And now they're struggling to come to terms with who are these children? What have they become and what are they actually like while I was away? Well, yeah. And at that point about absence is so, is so smart, Mike, because I think that one of the things that struck me in this like moment where Philip and Stan are kind of giving each other parenting advice, which just feels really bonkers. Um, 
But the thing that struck me is that like, we joke around about Stan being bad at his job, but this is a moment where Stan is sort of like admitting that he's maybe a bad dad. And I'm, I'm wondering about like the relationship between being bad at being bad at his job and being a bad father. And I wonder if part of it is related to, to absence or sort of like, a presumption of how things are supposed to be as opposed to attention to how things are. And I I wonder if there's a little bit of that tension in the Philip and Elizabeth and Paige situation as well, that they want Paige to be a certain way. Of course, that way for each of them is slightly different. And the like going to church and wanting to be baptized is doesn't fit into that for them. And so they're like incapable of um, like actually knowing their daughter because like they're not, they're not paying attention to who she actually is. And I wonder at this point if Stan has developed enough self-awareness that he would actually be able to vocalize that it was a mistake for him to have accepted the position going undercover with the white supremacists. He, he hasn't exactly been said to that, a- but I, I'd be curious if, if you would admit that at this point. He has been to a couple S sessions, so he's really like experiencing some extreme self-clarity right now. I also don't know if he, I, I think he thinks he's messed up with Matthew, but I'm not sure he knows or he has linked the like being away and doing his job to the like what's happening with Matthew. Like, I actually think that he locates it in the, like, Nina stuff or locates it at least, like, temporally a little bit more, uh, a little bit closer to, like, the moment that he's in now and not about, like, something that has built up over time, right? That is, like, perhaps related to, but I would also probably say, like, not necessarily caused by just being gone. Right, because the most recent thing that Matthew is angry about is, in fact, the recent breakup. And he's, as, from Stan's perspective, is right. taken Sandy's side. Although, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the three years difference in, like, how he described Matthew and his time with Matthew beforehand, right? They went to baseball games. They did stuff together, whatever. Then he came back from his three years and couldn't relate to him anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And he just expected things to be the same, right? Which is like, Mike, to your point, like about absence, like it can't be the same if, if someone has continued to like grow and exist and, and react to Stan's absence. I think that that's something that maybe Stan is not quite wrapping his head around that like the change in the relationship is not only about Stan being absent and no longer knowing his son, but it's about like Matthew reacting to Stan's absence. Right. Yeah, Matthew becoming you know more of a young adult. Yeah, I mean, you had you know reminded me of the scene with Philip and Elizabeth in the episode where they were talking about their kids when they were really young and kind of nostalgically looking back on you know when they were toddlers or very young children and then kind of yeah comparing that to how much more difficult it is for them now. Well, and like Philip being like, "What are you talking about?" And Elizabeth's like, "Paige fell down all the time." Like that was a really humorous exchange. And so it's interesting, again, like going into like that, like set of expectations. I think like Philip is remembering Paige the way he needs her to be for the like way he understands her today, as opposed to remembering a like, I don't know, like what really happened in her life. And I mean, there's a little bit of a sense in which Stan and Matthew's 
falling apart from one another is potentially from Phil's perspective, foreshadowing something between him and Paige, not only because of the, is Paige going to become a KGB agent or not? Are we going to tell her what we do, et cetera, et cetera. But also just the simple fact that like Matthew is a year or two older than Paige, right? So Matthew has like come into his adolescence more so than Paige has. So I'm sure there's probably some worry for Philip around that as well. I wonder if this is a good time to maybe shift from thinking about Stan and Matthew to thinking about like Stan and Oleg and Zineda and like that situation, sort of like use the Stan segue. Yeah. Okay. So I have, I have a foundational question about this that I am interested in both of your opinions on. So Stan proposes this like Fakakta plan where they, <laughs> where he, they're going to discover if Zineda is a defector or not. And they're going to trade Zineda for Nina. And I'm like, if this were to actually happen, there's no way the U.S. says yes to this, correct? Like, this is just all, like, fantasy in Stan's head? It has to be. But that's, like, the only reality that Stan can live in, especially now that Sandy, like, won't even listen to his apology. Does this fall into the category of Stan is bad at his job? (laughs) Or or is it... Stan is maybe good at his job when Nina's not involved because Nina's related, but not directly involved with this. So I'm not sure which side of the fence this falls on for Stan. I mean, my notes say frames Zineda as Russian spy Stan, either she is, or we make her one to get Nina out. So like, I, like John, to your question, like it just, it's like so ridiculous, but also it seems like no matter what, Zineda will be understood as a Russian spy. Like, that seems to be the, like, where we're going in this. Like, Oleg, with regard to Nina, is sometimes just as bad at his job as Stan is. Like, they're t- two love-struck idiots. <laughs> yeah, I-, I wondered in the second conversation between Oleg and Stan, did Oleg do other digging we didn't see? Because he has one conversation with Tatiana, and then he comes back to Stan and is like, there's nothing to find. I would have found something if there was anything to find. I'm like, would you have, though, based on that one conversation? Or did you do a lot more research that just wasn't on camera? One conversation with, like, a little bit of whiskey. <laughs> Johnny Walker Black uh, for Oleg and Tatiana, of course. It's keeping with, oh, with Oleg's love of things Western. I don't know. I am obviously, like, in the bag for Oleg Igorovich, so I'm yeah, probably the are. wrong person to ask about on this question. Of course, I assume he did, like, some deep analysis, worked all of his sources, got his dad to, like, work some personal connections. Of course, I would think that. But whether that means Oleg in the uh, universe of the show actually did, Two different questions. I'm just happy to have Costa Ronan and Noah Emmerich have scenes together because they're always great. A million percent. I like when when Oleg was running in the park. I was like, hmm, the last time like someone from from the embassy was running was not great. <laughs> um, but then I was like, oh, here's Stan. Who who would have thought? <laughs> The shot of them on the bridge when Oleg starts to walk away and then like half turns back and the camera goes from again, like face to face to each of the characters to pulling away to look at both of them across the bridge mm-hmm. in the fog, in the cloudiness, just like absolutely beautiful. Do you know where this place is? No, I, I do not know where this place is. No, I mean, I don't either. You're usually <laughs> just like eagle eyes with the prospect I mean, I, part. Was I was I attempting to figure that out? Of course I was. Did I? Not this one time. In my brain, I was like, I know that there's not a park like that in DC. 
<laughs> that's where that's where I was. Yeah, having lived in California my whole life, all of the <laughs> New York as Washington works for me because I don't know any better. <laughs> I know most of the time it works for me too because, like, as I'm sure you know by this point, I've basically never been to Brooklyn, which isn't true, but <laughs> I've like, never spent a lot of time in Brooklyn, and I don't know any. I just last episode John had to like educate me on a different park that existed in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> that's true. Danielle was unaware of Forest Park's existence, i.e. one of the key parks in the borough of Queens. Oh, yeah. Not even Brooklyn and Queens. But, like, I'm, I'm over here, like, Brooklyn and Queens are both on Long Island, so, like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> wow. Geographically, that's correct. Geographically correct, and effectually, that's some extreme Long Island homerism. One million percent. <laughs> that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. All right, so maybe we should talk about Martha and the Fog and Clark and the Foster Kids situation oh that opens the episode, which I think we have a lot of things to say. It's several parts of this episode of the Not Quite Great Books podcast. But just <laughs> in terms of kind of these broader questions that we've been interested in about um, Philip, Elizabeth, and Stan vis-a-vis children, any, any thoughts on this interaction? Okay, well, first of all, the quote that I have written down, and Philip says this, uh, Philip as Clark rather says, we're not buying one today. And like that in general, terrible, but the fact that all the foster kids are black makes it so much worse. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, this is horrible, literally horrible. Being surveilled by these two adult white people. Oh my God. On the it's- other side of like a, you know, uh, whatever two on the nose mike what were your thoughts on this yeah i just don't know what what martha is really thinking i mean she's got this small apartment <laughs> like where's a kid gonna be where are you gonna put this kid when they're having their crazy sex like what's <laughs> what is her is she gonna move like what's the plan i mean, I mean even setting aside the fact that clark's never around like where is this kid gonna be all day all day which is at work <laughs> or at night when they're i, I don't know She doesn't even have a full-size fridge. She has a mini fridge. (laughs) You can't have a mini fridge with a kid. What? These are great points. But I mean, it's like so indicative of Martha's extreme keenness on certain issues and her extreme kind of obliviousness at the other end when it comes to Clark and all things related to or adjacent to Clark's, right? Of course, the logical answer or like the, you know, uh, consistent answer and kind of her like psychic emotional state to Clark is absent. Speaking of absence, Clark is absent. Clark is never there. I don't know what Clark does. I can't actually be married to Clark to anybody except to Clark and to my parents, right, is let me have a child. Let me buy a child, right, to use Clark's phrase, Ah. to fill, right, to fill, like, this emotional gap or absence in her own life. And the fact that Clark doesn't want to probably actually just makes it better from that, like, weird psychic emotional state for her. There is a question I'd never thought about before, which is, is Clark financially supporting her? Like, is she getting like paychecks from him for his supposed job or they just have (laughs) completely separate finances along with everything else. Separate finances for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. But I think I'm sure Clark like puts in a little bit of money for the bills or whatever. Right. Like, but I think like Martha's the one footing most of the bill for this relationship. 
emotionally and (laughs) (laughs) and that like support for the bill or like some grocery money or whatever is like cash that's left on her kitchen table uh definitely not like coming from a checking account that the fbi could trace the thing that's like the most wild about the all of the foster like stuff that it comes up a couple of times in this episode is when philip is explaining this to Elizabeth and it's like, I don't know, like it could it, it like it could be fun. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You're like supposed to be having sex with a 15-year-old and having a meltdown about it, which is understandable. You're supposed to be turning your daughter into an agent and having a meltdown about it, also understandable. And now you want to bring another child into the mix? Like, what's happening here, Philip? Like, what's, get yeah. out of here. <laughs> Well, he's doing. He's reflecting back on the conversation with Elizabeth when he was thinking about Paige and Henry as young kids. And I think it's. I mean, Stan's doing the same thing. Martha's doing the same thing. Really idealizing having young children, and yeah, eventually that kid's going to grow up and be more of a problem. But oh, young kids—they're so cute. They're so great. And oh. Ga- and Gabriel like laying it out as it is in a way that actually made me think a little bit about Claudia and how it's just that the relationship that Gabriel has to Philip and Elizabeth and his like uh, his way of relating to Philip and Elizabeth is so different than Claudia that his line about how like there are people's lives who intersect with our mission, but the mission, the operation always takes precedence. You could easily picture Claudia saying that exact same thing to Philip and Elizabeth. Um, And Gabriel's doing it in this context though, where like, of course that's most directly about Kimmy, but it's also about like, Hey, Philip, maybe don't adopt a child with Martha. Right. Right after Gabriel is told Philip, he's the best there is. Then he says, well, you must be confused, right? Martha, Kimmy, Paige is a lot, might be confusing even for you. So Gabriel's kind of trying to offer some reality check to Philip. But also all of these different, like Philip and Elizabeth vis-a-vis Paige, Philip and Elizabeth vis-a-vis, and Gabriel vis-a-vis Kimmy, and then also Clark and Martha vis-a-vis the foster kids, and I would, I would probably like add the Brelands and, and Kimmy in there too, right? Like, and Stan and Matthew, this is like, there is a tension here between thinking about children as objects or pawns in a broader sort of like geopolitical set of power plays and thinking about children as like actual human beings and, and people that have like, you know, emotional well-beings and things like that. And I feel like you see a lot of that. I don't know. This is like how I sometimes think about um, discussions between friends of mine about whether or not they're going to have kids. Like when we were younger, it was like, oh, that's just like what we're supposed to do. And there's something about like, okay, well, if it's like what we're supposed to do, and I think there's a version of that that Philip is sort of like thinking about with Martha, like this would fill a gap. This is what we're supposed to do. Like I can't do it one way, so let's do it this way. Like this putting this Band-Aid on doesn't actually take into account like that once you shift from thinking about children as like objects or pawns into thinking about them as like humans that have an emotional reality like there's a huge gap there and like that's a like i don't know there was something about all of this discussion that was like not treating children as like 
actual humans that kept coming back over and over again, like with everyone in this episode. Well, and of course, Paige and Henry were pawns originally, and mm-hmm. they weren't. Yeah, you know, they didn't have them because they really wanted kids. The yeah, way of, you know, traditional couple mites. They had them for their cover. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Henry well, is still a pawn. He's barely a character in the Americans, oh, much okay. less a full, fully formed human being. Oh, Henry. I think he's been in every episode. Yeah, even if only for a little bit. <laughs> even if only for like great laugh lines, like "How's Mrs. Beeman?" Oh <laughs> and, my god! And, and Paige, who like among all people, so everybody's like, you know, oh, this is uncomfortable. There's the divorce, et cetera, et cetera. And Paige is like, not only are they divorced, but my brother has a picture of Sandy in a bikini, just hanging out in his room. That's definitely not his. Don't worry. May I please change the subject is a line I will be using in my life from now on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Subject change of our own. Let's head to the Uh, segments. On to the dossier. Danielle, you have two full-time people who have watched the show before. So you have an even larger audience than usual for some crackpot. Amazing, amazing. Listen, I wanna I wanna pick up where we sort of like wrapped up in the main discussion again with Martha, as always. Um, I just feel like I think I said this last episode, I was like, the discussion of foster kids feels like Martha putting a nail in her coffin. Now we're not just discussing foster kids, we are like like shopping for foster kids. <laughs> like we are at the physical place. Like I just feel like Martha's death is imminent. And she's doing it to herself. And there's something about, like, Philip being like, I don't know, this, like, could be fine. And Elizabeth being like, you idiot. Like, of course it can't be fine. Makes me feel like I'm going to be vindicated in this analysis. Future predictions, Danielle. Does Martha, at some point in her life, however long that life is or is not, have a foster kid? I don't think Martha's alive long enough to have a foster kid. All right. I (laughs) I wanted to get you on the record. That's all. On the record, um, my other the other thing I want to throw in the dossier is that listen, we've seen all season. Philip and Elizabeth are sort of like they're there's like this war of position happening, like that's like being fought over Paige. Did you just Gramsci their relationship? Yeah, I'm I here because obviously I'm here for it. I did. It's the only thing I've been able to think about, and I can't believe I haven't mentioned it for Cave until now. But anyway, um, they're just, they're fighting over Paige, and, you know, Paige is already suspicious that her mom, like, is coming to church with her, and she calls her out on it last episode, right? And now we get Philip in the span of, like, negative two seconds being like, I'll take Paige to get a dress. Like, <laughs> like my dad has never volunteered to like take us shopping. Um, although he does love the Carhartt store. Sean Hanley loves the Carhartt. <laughs> so I just feel like Paige is aware that her parents, like something's weird with her parents. How long until Paige realizes how she is being manipulated by each of her parents against the other. And I, my, the question I have for myself is like, is she going to realize that that is happening before she is actually turned like into a spy (laughs) before it's revealed to her? Do you think that what's, what's the prediction? I think she's going to realize it and not realize she's realized it, which I think is like the thing that that seems to be the theme with Paige is like, she actually like knows what's up, but, but doesn't 
doesn't know how to articulate it for herself. Um, so that knowledge, she's alienated from her own knowledge. Excellent. Mike, are there any questions that you have a, you have an opportunity to get Danielle on the record about anything season three related? Let's just throw the whole, the whole thing open. Well, so I'm curious what your thoughts on Zenaida are. <laughs> um, is she a spy? Is Stan's theory completely insane? What are your thoughts about her? I don't think that Zenaida is a spy, but I do think that there is a, like, some latent spy. Like, there, somebody, somebody in the Russian camp, like, has been turned. Um, like, I don't think it's Zenaida, but I do think that what's happening with Zenaida is going to be revealed to actually have been happening with someone else. I don't know who that someone else is. Maybe right now I want it to be Gabriel because I want there to be like a big Frank Langella like <laughs> reveal. But I think like, I don't think that, first of all, I am suspicious of Zenaida, but I don't actually think that she's the one who's turned. I think someone else has. Whether it's correct or not, that's a wonderful prediction. I'll take the compliment. <laughs> uh, I'm also curious, well, what are your thoughts on Gabriel? Because I've been, I guess in this rewatch for me, I've been more struck by how kind of, I don't not evil, but certainly manipulative he is. I think in the past, I kind of thought, oh, you know, Claudia is kind of more hard-nosed. Mm. Gabriel's more friendly and paternal. And then this rewatch, I'm kind of going, is he though? Or is that just a... Uh, you know, the way he presents himself, but uh, what are your thoughts on him so far? Oh, it's a great question. I, in general, as a human, am more suspicious of women. So I, too, was like, I know this about myself. I, too, like, was... I'm, I'm definitely more suspicious of Claudia than I am of Gabriel, but... It's not like, oh, Gabriel is like all good and Claudia is the devil. It's like Claudia is the devil and Gabriel is like, like the angel of death very close to the, you know, like is not far behind that. Um, yeah, he strikes me as like, he strikes me as manipulative, but I don't necessarily, I think, I guess in response to your question, I think it's a structural thing, right? Like the person in that position actually has to be incredibly manipulative. And part of what the problem with Kate was is that like, there wasn't like she, she wasn't, I, I think maybe like not strong enough and not manipulative enough or not outside of herself enough, like in that role. I don't know. Claudia's still alive. Gabriel's still alive. Kate's dead. <laughs> I think paternal is the right word for it. Mike, given that we have this episode that's all about how can you manipulate children or not into doing the things you want them to do. Daniel, I've got a question for you. Do we have any suspicion whatsoever that Tori called Stan at the FBI? Well, yes. How did she know he worked at the FBI? Like, that didn't seem to be a thing he said to her in the three second like decline of her of her going of her wanting to go on a date last episode um yeah i'm suspicious of her i don't think she's like some other russian spy uh something something but something's up okay excellent are we are we finished with the dossier for today that's all I've got in the dossier. 
All right, let us head to glass. So the kind of major set of action and also kind of emotional manipulation that we've yet to talk about is Elizabeth, right, as Michelle um, and her getting Lisa to move, you know, 50 miles away, killing somebody so that Lisa can have a job at the Northrop plant they need to get into, having a quote-unquote, like, boyfriend benefactor sugar daddy who is just casually asking her for information about her job at a defense contractor. Very, very normal things happening in this realm of the plot this week. Yeah, you would think Lisa would have had some training to get her security clearance that this would be setting off alarm bells. And she does warn, you know, Michelle to be careful, but I wasn't... I don't know. I wasn't sure how many red flags were going off for Lisa compared to what I would expect, given that security clearance, you think you'd get trained to look for exactly this kind of thing. I mean, like it, it, it does feel pretty eighties to just like stumble into high security clearance. Maybe that's uh, maybe like the lesson from the eighties is like that we need real procedures for this, but um, no, I, this storyline more than the other ones. I think I said this a couple of episodes ago, like this one is really disturbing to me. Like all of the dynamics at play, like I just, it it makes me sad. Especially because Lisa is so effusive towards Michelle slash Elizabeth about how improved her life is as a result of her, that she is Lisa's lucky charm, right? That she is like this new great friend, Right, all the ways in which Lisa is expressing this kind of pure emotional gratitude and openness in yeah. one of Elizabeth's like most manipulative kind of uh, missions or operations. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think both things can be true, right? Like yeah. that Elizabeth as Michelle entering into Lisa's life when she does does have this like positive effect on Lisa and like that for Elizabeth, it is just like another mode of manipulation, right? Like those are not mutually exclusive. And that's, I think part of what makes it so sad. And we get Elizabeth's casual wordless nighttime murder where the car that just happened to fall on Tom, the car guy about whom we'll have more to say later. Right. So that the job opening can come to the Northrop factory. That's so close by. I also have a question about the earlier scene when she's scoping out yeah. Tom, yeah. the car guy, which is who runs the Soviet kennel? Like, do they have someone <laughs> I, who just provides dogs to all same, of their agents? I, same question. I was like, where did she get a dog? <laughs> The first time, I believe, that we've had the use of a pet in a mission, correct? I think so. I was like, I I literally was like, do Philip and Elizabeth have a dog that I don't know about? Does somebody (laughs) else have a dog? Like, where is this dog from? Where is she putting the dog when when she goes back? Like, where does she go back to? I like rapid fire set of questions in this like 20 second scene. And at one point it looks like they, she's going to reach down and like, just like let the dog run so that she can maybe like continue on her mission or whatever. And I'm like, no, Elizabeth, the dog, don't let it run free. <laughs> but it's a, no, it's a very well-trained, just like the spies creature. Uh, I think like the other piece of this for me is that 
Lisa is like her hackles are up in general, right? Like she warns Michelle, like she is like everything that's going on with her husband. Like she does seem like she is aware of her surroundings and yet like cannot see this manipulation that's happening, which I think is like that sort of dual screen is like so common. It's like something that, that we come back to over and over and over again in the show, right? Like the ability to like get in, but like hide themselves is like what makes Philip and Elizabeth like great at their jobs when they are being good at them. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's kind of a new side of Elizabeth. I don't think we've seen much of to this point, her being kind of very, you know, girly and having this you know, <laughs> female friend that she's, you know, joking with. And you you would think they were drinking wine if they hadn't met in AA. Right. This would be like a wine and cheese kind of, you know, party they're having together. But yeah, it's not, I don't think we've seen much of that kind of personality from Elizabeth. With yeah, we, marks. we don't see Elizabeth having fun a lot. With the exception of, and I wouldn't necessarily say it was fun, but I do think we see maybe like a version of this side with Gregory, um, like a, a side that's maybe a tiny bit more carefree um, than she exists in her in her own life. And obviously, like she's playing carefree here and and not not fully carefree, but the effect is the same. It's the giggliness, like when they're giggling together over her boyfriend slash benefactor, right? That's led to the coach bag and let's go to a fancy dinner. Yeah, she's kind of shimmying her shoulders and like, yeah, moving in a very un-Elizabeth sort of way. Yeah. Well, and, and when Lisa is like, did you sleep with him? And she's like, I, not yet, but I hope so. Like, yeah. she's like very upfront about these these things, which is like another piece of her that we don't see. We see her having to engage in sexual acts a number of times, but we don't see her as like excited about them, like even in this sort of like flippant, uh, like fun way. This is also a season in which we have more deep dive into Est than we got in the previous of seasons of the American and like a kind of a scant look at 12 step programs as well, right? Through, right? The fact that Elizabeth is using AA to manipulate Lisa. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting that you're right that she's using AA to manipulate Lisa and also when she's with Lisa following the steps, right? Like like Mike to your point about that this is a scenario where like we we would have assumed that they were drinking wine together, but we know that they're in AA and we see those like very classic Schweppes bottles, <laughs> uh the tiny ones. Even though it's a it's a tool of manipulation. It's also something that Elizabeth has like taken on in this like version of, in this, in this uh, like alias of hers. All right. Let us push forward into gloss. So we have this scene between Philip is Scott Berkland and Yusuf, where Yusuf is telling him about the ISI, the Pakistani uh, secret service, and it's turned towards uh, deeper religion, religiosity, so on and so forth. And there's one line in particular I wanted to get your two thoughts on, which is Yusuf says something about how the fact that, you know, it's, uh, or Philip says, who says that to who, right? Something about how right now this is turned against the Soviet Union, but it's coming for the U.S. next, right? And so I was wondering if you all read this line as kind of like an effective 
use of the fact that we can comment on the 80s from the standpoint of the 2010s mm-hmm. or if like it's a little bit too prescient to be like the backlash of you know supporting the mujahideen in afghanistan during the 80s was the growth of the taliban in the 90s 9-11 these sorts of things i, I mean i guess i I interpreted the line you're talking about as him talking about Pakistan, since that's where use of his from. So I, I didn't read it as a comment on the U.S. at all. I thought he was talking more about, hey, the problems in Afghanistan are going to come to you, Yusuf, in Pakistan mm-hmm. next. But you could be right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about this line like that at all. But I appreciate I appreciate sort of both of these perspectives. I think that it is it's both and right. Like it's it's both of these things. It's it's the it's it's both like oh look at the ability to sort of like comment on this from outside and also like. In the next six years, like this is exactly what the sort of like backlash is part of what the U.S. is going to be experiencing. So there's like there's something about at least for me watching this in 2022, 2023 for the first time, like I can't like detach it fully from the like Trump, Putin, war in Ukraine, like that piece of all of this, um, which effectively makes for a very messy answer to your question, John, but that's sort of like where I'm watching this show from. And that's, what's informing my perspective. Yeah. Moving along. One thing that I, we briefly touched on, I think in the last episode is that Elizabeth is always doing domestic work in this season, right? Like so many of the argumentative conversations between Elizabeth and Philip take place like as an interruption for, or Elizabeth's domestic tasks are like entree into the conversation, like all the time, whether it's like scrubbing the bathroom or the tub, whether it's changing, whether it's showering, whether it's putting the lotion on her hands, there's like something about the kind of domestic life of Elizabeth as location of time for Elizabeth and Philip to have an argument this season. I'm wondering if either of you had any thoughts on what's up with that. Yeah, I guess she's branched out from laundry because that was like <laughs> the one thing she was constantly doing. Maybe she realized like she needed some some other cover to do stuff. Because I mean, how much laundry can you actually do? Yeah, Paige was getting really suspicious when they were always in the laundry room. So if they're always in their bedroom or like some version of it, then like it's less suspicious, I guess. Um, well, maybe it's using the fact that Paige walked in on the two of them having sex like putting that to use, right? Like if they are having these conversations in the bedroom, maybe they feel that that is indeed a much safer place from Paige's, you know, own spy craft than being down in the basement. That's a great call. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that you're onto something there. Yeah. Like that. The, the other like meta reason is that they built the bathroom set newly for this season. So now they're having to get, get their use out of it. <laughs> Uh, I love the production note. (laughs) I love the meta stuff so much. Um, It's great. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if we were in the cave, we could like build out a whole wages for housework, Marxist feminist (laughs) sort of deal, but we'll, we'll save that for the actual cave. Um, All right. Tatiana Oleg scene. I love this scene. I love the glasses that Oleg brings in for them to drink Johnny Walker together. Right. Except that like, if this were the Soviet Union, they'd be drinking vodka together out of those right. very glasses. I have drank vodka in Russia out of glasses almost exactly like that uh, in my one semester there uh, with my host family. 
and stuffed it with Johnny Walker. So like on that level, I enjoyed the, you know, I always enjoy Soviet embassy production design uh, as everybody well knows, but then there's also just like that particular note of the scene. And also it's like trying to figure out how Oleg is relating to Tatiana at this moment in the season is I think interesting because there's, it's reads to me in the scene as confused. I don't know if confusion is the right word, but there's both for him, the wanting to find out information about Zinjeda for Stan's crazy scheme and some sort of genuine desire for human connection with Tatiana. So how do you two read that uh, relation between the two of them? Yeah, I thought the most interesting part of the scene was the little fencing they do about the cheers versus the Budem that yeah. she wants to say. And then he comes around to her and says Budem back to her at the end of the scene. So that was interesting. And yeah, she's very, I mean, she still seems very standoffish. And so if, yeah, if he's trying to make that connection, I'm not totally sure she's buying it at this point. Um, she makes a comment at one point about, you know, oh, maybe you should write a memo. Maybe your theory won't seem as crazy <laughs> to someone else as it seems to me. And so it does it. it, it if, yeah, if he's fishing, it doesn't seem like she's biting at this point. I appreciated how she was like from the jump. She was like, heard you were leaving. And he's like, <laughs> and he's like, that's her. Like, she didn't beat around the bush. She was just like, heard you're out of here, buddy. Like, like and I'm not going to waste my time with you. Um, I also just appreciated that, like, I think you're right. Like, she's not biting, but I think that's also, like, it's demonstrative of her personality, which is, like, I do not take bullshit. I'm not, like, I'm not, like, some lady that's, that's gonna fall in love with you, which probably means that, like, she will eventually fall in love with him this season. <laughs> are you, are also- you making a backwards, a backdoor Dase entry, Danielle? Yeah, I wasn't thinking about it, but it's just like, that's like the, like the TV magic of it all is like, oh God, I guess Tatiana and Oleg are going to have sex at some point. Um, But I think like, she's just like, I'm not going to deal with your bullshit, pretty boy. Um, (laughs) And so it's telling that he comes around to her at the end for the cheers, right? Like, and that she's not coming around to him in the same way. Like, I think that that's. I don't know, is, like, Tatiana the original negger? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, she didn't get to watch season two and see all the character growth that Oleg had in the course of that season. So right. she still seems to be seeing him more the way that, you know, that Daniel, you were seeing him when we when you first started season yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, but but also, that's, that is totally fair. Um, but it, it, it doesn't, she doesn't strike me as someone who, at least face value, like knowing her a couple of episodes or like maybe she's only been in two. She doesn't strike me as someone who's like willing to put up with like frat boy bullshit, which is generally what Oleg's nonsense appears as, even if it's not always that. <laughs> well, and I'm sure she knows who Oleg's father is and yes. is probably not very, you know, thrilled about that either. Right. For sure. Right. Cause it's, the fact that Oleg is connected, which, you know, this is like the thing with Arkady that Arkady warns Oleg about saying too much to Tatiana in the first or second episode of the season. And Oleg seems to suggest, well, you know, he's covered because his dad is close friends with Chernenko at this point. So we also get um, 
in addition to this Oleg uh, Tatiana exchange, which is maybe my favorite part of the essay, of the essay, my favorite part of the episode. <laughs> As Danielle been writing earlier today, sounds Oof. like yes, <laughs> sounds like yes. Um, but we also get uh, Lucia callback or Lucia, Lucia, Lucia in the Lucia. show. Yeah, um, she died a lot of episodes ago. And Gabriel's like, oh, by the way, sorry about that. And Philip's like, yeah, Elizabeth was like really impacted, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what's happening here? Like, what's going on here? So I wonder, do either of you have anything to to say about this seemingly random callback? Yeah, I mean, part of it, I guess, is sort of placing the episode in its historical context. I'm sure that since they spent so much time on you know, the Contras last season, they probably thought, you know, hey, the Boland Amendment is something we should mark. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's w- one of the examples that I really like of where they're able to kind of insert Philip and Elizabeth into the real history without yeah. really changing things, but with kind of like suggesting that they played a role behind the scenes in events that really happened. You know, we saw that back in season one in the Reagan assassination attempt episode. Yeah. Where it's like they're the ones who kind of keep the Soviet Union from overreacting. And then, yeah, here it's so, sort of suggested that what they did in, in Marshall Eagle last season had a big impact on the passage of the Boland Amendment. And so they want to kind of bring that up. But plus this is a show that just does not forget about characters. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, can be a little tough to follow, especially if, you know, if it's been a year, if you're watching it, you know, when it first aired. Right. And they're like, oh, here's this character who was, you know, off the show for a season and a half. We expect you to still remember who they are and why they matter. Well, like to that point, when Gabriel showed up, I was like, it seems like we know this person, but have we ever met this person? And John was like, oh, that's the Gabriel that they were referring to for a long time. And it like made some pieces fall into place for me. So I think you're right that there's a, there's a kind of like longevity and like respect that's, that's paid to not only the universe of the show and those that exist in it, but the universe in which the show exists, like Mm -hmm. in relation to like reality. And I mean, let's not forget that, like, not only do we get the kind of Boland Amendment, like historicity of the show, right? So the Boland Amendment, which uh, banned the uh, federal government from, according to Wikipedia, from providing military support for the purpose of overthrowing the government of Nicaragua, end quote. Um, so we get these moments of it, but it's also another, I forget which episode it was, Danielle, that you and I were talking about this, but that like, that we had Lucia, who was the surrogate spy child for Elizabeth. We have Hans, who is the kind of surrogate spy child of Elizabeth. There's the page situation. So as there's all these page Kimmy issues coming up in this episode, I think that there's a kind of purposeful bringing back of Lucia as somebody who was Mm. a trainee uh, mentee of Elizabeth, right? A female mentee of Elizabeth, right? Um, Who died for the cause. Yeah, and, like, harping on maybe, like, that surrogacy piece of it. Mm. That, like, perhaps trying to, like, articulate it at once a difference between the relationship with Paige and the difference between the relationship with Kimmy. Like, by virtue of thinking through, like, surrogate daughter as opposed to daughter as opposed to, like, potential love interest, right? Like, that those are all different roles. There's some differentiation that's happening here. As opposed to foster child. Foster daughter. Oh, as opposed to foster daughter. Yes. All right. I, I have, can't buy one today. <laughs> I have one kind of random note that's just like been on my mind a lot as we've been watching uh, season three here. That So we have Kimberly, Kimmy, 
James, Jim, and I, this will not be something that Danielle is concerned with, but perhaps Mike is uh, on, on his mind, is Better Call Saul, right? Because there you have Kim and Jimmy as the two main central characters of Better Call Saul. And so there's like, not not saying there's any kind of direct connection, but just that like, I want the crossover universe where uh, Kim and Jimmy uh, from Better Call Saul like could go back in time and become lawyers for the travel agency uh, that Philip and Elizabeth run. So too many, too many Kim and Jimmys. Uh, intend to watch Better Call Saul, but haven't watched it yet. So, oh, finally, someone who's on on board with me not watching Prestige TV. <laughs> <laughs> As we're on a minute, uh, hour eighteen of discussing a Prestige TV show. <laughs> a camera shot that I noticed, and said that's something you enjoy, John, which was the the scene when Henry makes his awkward comment about Mrs. Beeman. I love the way you get like quick reaction shots <laughs> of all the other Jennings like looking horrified. But then when you actually get, it then pulls out to look at the entire table and there's like a light coming down on the empty chair next oh. to Stan. Oh. I thought it was very interesting the way that like shot was framed, nice. like really emphasizing her absence. That's so, incredible. That's I'm going to, once we get off recording, I'm going to go back and look at that particular shot because I, I missed that. Ah, oh, I love it. Uh, we, I, I do love a good camera work in this episode, in this show for sure. Barton Sauter for the Unremembered 80s. Mike, are you going to leave Danielle's burden? Are you, do, you, do you have awareness of this reference to share uh, with Danielle? Unfortunately, I, I cannot. Um, <sighs> I, I looked it up back when I first started listening to the podcast in season one. I didn't recognize the reference then, and I've long since forgotten what it was anyway. So Great. Sorry, I can't tell oh, you. I love womp, it. Womp. I love it. <laughs> All right, Mike, why don't you kick us off with some borrowed nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s? Yeah, the first thing that struck me was the very first scene, which is um, the fact that Clark and Martha are going to, you know, look at these foster kids. And we touched <laughs> on the scene, but the fact that they're doing this without having gone through any background yeah. checks, any approvals, <laughs> any authorizations, like because they can't have been because Clark can't you know, pass. Can't, you, you can't pass a background check, but here they are being shown kids. Like that just strikes me as crazy. Oh, I I fully agree with you on this one. There's like the lack of the, there's something about the lack of like red tape that feels very 80s where 80s also feels simultaneously like like laden with bureaucratic bullshit, but of course like this thing which actually impacts people's lives has like completely like you can you can go kid shopping whenever you want in the 80s. And of course, this raises the question for the show of like, what does Martha think is going to happen oh. if they actually try to get a child? Like Clark will be like, well, we can't put my name on this. I'll get in trouble with work and they'll know somehow. So, but yeah, I, yeah. I refer you to the dossier in which <laughs> I have said Martha will never get a child because she won't be alive long enough. She's just putting the nails in her own coffin right now. Ah, fair enough. Also in that scene, uh, I had a little bit of of actual nostalgia for the remembered eighties. <laughs> um, I was I was born in eighty four, so I remember a little bit about the late eighties. Yeah, same. And there's this like bead and wire toy in that <laughs> yeah. in the room with the foster oh, kids. I, I, saw and I was like, about. oh, I remember yeah, yeah. playing with one of those when I was young. That was very like doctor's office or dentist's office, like one of those a hundred percent preschool. That's a good preschool toy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Good, good eyes, Mike. Good yeah, eyes. We, we love it. Um, I want to take credit for my own spotting of the poster on Kimmy's bedroom wall, which is in perfect keeping with her Yaz love from the previous episode, where she had the Yaz uh, record that she is playing for Philip James. And here she's got a Human League poster on her wall. So to be 15 in the 80s in DC in like a kind of wealthy, like white situation in the suburbs and be listening to Yaz in the Human League. This is one of Kimmy's like greatest triumphs in the Americans is she has impeccable synth pop eighties tastes. I did not know the Human League was a band, so that's another band I've learned about just from doing this podcast with you. That's not to say that's not to even address all the different uh bands that you've exposed me to in the car. <laughs> <laughs> or been angry that I did not know about before I got in the car with you. Um, but there is, I think a great music cue in this episode. There's flock of seagulls. Um, I ran so far away. That's playing when Philip as Jim goes to meet Kimmy at the, like under the bridge party, uh, which is like such a classic 80s song that it like made my heart burst. Yeah. It's not, I wouldn't call it a needle drop scene because it's in universe music. It's yeah. not, you know, just on the soundtrack, but yeah, definitely very noticeable. Amazing. I'd like and, to, and if you watch the the whole scene with subtitles, they keep putting in lines from the song in the subtitles. <laughs> after you can barely hear them in the background. Like <laughs> Jim and Kimmy are over by his car talking and like, you're still getting lines from the song popping up in the subtitles. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, from the boom box in the last episode to the car radio blasting flock of seagulls in this episode, God, you love to see it. Uh, I'd like to call out Oleg's jogging outfit, which <laughs> is a, I would wear and B seems incredibly eighties to me. Although Oleg will looks better in it than I would. It reminds me of the warm up suit I had on my swim team <laughs> in the nineties, which I believe were track suits from the eighties, so <laughs> it, it fits. It also reminds me of like Nina's prison fit <laughs> mm. from the last episode. So And Vlad's jogging suit. Yeah, yeah, and Vlad's jogging suit. So I was re- I was here for Oyeg's outfit. I also loved the contrast as uh, Oyeg and Stan are are arguing with one another across <laughs> yeah. this bridge. That like stands in his like long trench FBI trench coat, and Oyeg needs some gloves. A Oyeg, you grew up in the Soviet Union. You grew up like in <laughs> Moscow. You know it's cold. You need to wear some gloves, my friend. Uh, and B that he's in the tracksuit while Stan is like in his trench coat. The contrast between those two and their respective personalities, I thought was spot on. To be fair to Oleg, like as someone who runs outside in the cold a fair amount, like, yes, you need gloves, but you need them when you're stationary. When you're running outside, you don't need the gloves. And so I think like that's a, I wasn't planning on not really exercising as opposed to I like forgot that in the cold you need gloves. Fair enough. I don't know. It just like, <laughs> I just want to bring my knowledge in here at some point. <laughs> Um, Mike, I think the next uh, like comment on outfits is is yours. Yeah, so the next one, I got to give credit to my wife, Natalie, who watched the episode with me last night. And she nice. pointed out, I would never have realized this, that <laughs> uh, when Philip, as Jim, goes over to Kimmy's house, he's wearing a members-only jacket. And so when they're having that long conversation on the porch, she's like, I'm pretty sure that's a 
it's a members only jacket. And it's like, yeah, sure enough, it was nice. Um, yeah. And then she also pointed out Elizabeth's look as Michelle, her like blue eyeliner yeah. and earrings. She just said screamed eighties to her. So there's something about Elizabeth's look as Michelle that, that is very reminiscent of like gem and the holograms, which is mm. also like quintessential eighties to me. Like she doesn't get as far as like, obviously pink hair but like there's like the blue eyeliner and the earrings and like the more ostentatious jewelry than elizabeth wears like feels like it's bordering on gem yeah i mean and her hair is also wonderful 80s core yeah michelle too um what do we think of the members only cowboy boot combo that philip comes up with yes yes no next next trend on the runways what do we think I mean, does justice to like dirt bag. So <laughs> Yeah, I think uh I think my wife's comment when you first walked in the house was, is he wearing cowboy boots and a tie? <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> That's James the lobbyer lobbyist lawyer, uh New York City, greater DC area. Uh, you know, that's, that's what you wear is the like bad tie, bad shirts, bad ties, cowboy boots, members only jacket. Oh my God. Too much, too much. We also get a clueless Stan moment that I'd like to shout out is seeming quite eighties for me where he's talking about Tori calling him up and asking him out on the date. And his quip is that I guess women do that now is in asking him out on a date, which seems both for whatever reason, like, I, you know, I was born in 87, so what do I actually know? It's unremembered 80s nostalgia. But that seems to me perfect to encapsulate the, I am vaguely aware that there's some slight shift in normative gender roles when it comes to dating, but I'm still going to be, like, really bro and dumb about it. And, My note- and that is Stan's persona, so it's, it-, it works. My notes say Stan is a misogynist. So. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think like that's his persona. Like he, I, it seems like part of what makes him mad about Sandy going to Est is like any form of women's empowerment seems like antithetical to the way that Stan exists in the world. So Stan's misogyny, misogyny, bad at his job, bad parent. <laughs> All right. I think we're, we want to close with some food notes on the, in the unremembered eighties. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The scene with, uh, Elizabeth as Michelle and Lisa when they're having blue cheese and it's like this super exotic thing to have blue cheese and it's the most expensive cheese that Lisa could find. That was great. It was especially struck me because uh, just a couple of weeks ago for, for Christmas Eve, we had charcuterie at my, my in-laws nice. and we brought French brie and English cheddar and Swiss gourmet and Dutch Gouda and we got all these things at Costco. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, things have changed since yeah. 1982. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I can go to the price chopper down the street and, like, get some good uh, blue cheese. And it is far from the most expensive cheese at the yeah. price chopper. <laughs> oh, I would chopper. know. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I love that that was, like, the mark of, like, exquisite taste in this episode. It was, it was very funny. And neither very... of them are into it. They're like, fuck this. Like, let's go to get, you know, some Italian place down the road. Listen, I want to be very clear. I'm also not into eating blue cheese on crackers. Like, I want to eat brie or gouda. Like, blue cheese is a salad cheese, not a cracker cheese. I would generally agree with that. There 
is like a fancy Vermont like cheese situation where they have blue cheeses that one eats on crackers. That actually okay. I've, I've had I've had with producer Amy in Burlington, Vermont. We've had blue cheese that like is cracker blue cheese. That tracks in all in, <laughs> in all number of ways. <laughs> um, I also want to like add to this like discussion of eighties food: the Jiffy Pop and the Rocky Road happening um, between. That's like the munchy food that that Philip as Jim and Kimmy are are eating. And like, first of all, just like Jiffy Pop on the stove in one of those like tin foil pans. We were mm-hmm. never allowed to have that in my house. My mom <laughs> makes popcorn like in a pot. We have the first thing we all learned how to make is popcorn in a pot on the stove when we're all home. Becky will always be like, "Mom, will you make popcorn?" Like every day, like. It's a staple and, in the Hamlet house. Okay. And is Vicky's response yes or make it your damn self? No, it's always yes. She okay. loves to make popcorn. And she's the best at it. Like, she's better than all of us. And we can all make it. Like, I actually yeah. made popcorn for myself yesterday yeah. for dinner. <laughs> um, but also, Rocky Road feels, like, very 80s. I'm sure you could also get it now. But, you know, I, I haven't seen a pint of Rocky Road, like, since my grandfather passed away it's like rocky road and rum raisin mm-hmm. like two very 80s flavors rum raisin i think is is classic 80s butter pecan bar oh i'm very surprised i love a butter pecan nice. i was very surprised to go online and discover you can still buy jiffy pop today really uh, yeah, apparently. Apparently, we're doing free ad, free advertising for the price <laughs> chopper because not only can you get like pretty good blue cheese at a reasonable price, you can get a Jiffy Pop like pan situation at the price chopper uh, on Route Three in Plattsburgh, New York. There you go. Vicky Hanley would be disappointed in you. I would instead get. I would either do it myself, like with actual kernels in a pot. Yeah. Or microwave. I would not do this like in between Jiffy Pop situation. You know how Vicky feels about microwaves. I'm They're sure that's even gross. worse. Yeah, microwaves are gross. Even though we grew up having one, now she's like, "Why do you want a microwave? It's gross." I'm like, "Because I'm a human." <laughs> anyway, this is we don't have to. This doesn't have to be a Vicky Hanley food situation, but there are very strong popcorn vibes in the Hanley family. I believe it. I believe it. All right. I think it's time for minor character of the week. And yes. Mike, of course, is our guest. We call on you to offer a more difficult situation than usual to find a minor character of the week. Yeah, there weren't too many uh, minor characters this week, but um, I think the minor character of the week has to be Tom, <laughs> a.k.a. Car Guy. Yeah. Played oh. by R.I.P. George R. Sheffy. He gets two scenes in which we... <laughs> Barely see his face from across the street, and then mostly see his legs. Um, they at least certainly, you know, he either makes a big impact on the episode, or as John, as you said earlier, the episode makes a big impact <laughs> on him. Yes. Uh, certainly one of the more memorable scenes. Yeah. Uh, if it wasn't for the closing flashback, it would probably be the, you know, scene everyone remembers from this episode. But yeah, so R.A.P. Tom, the car guy, I just, you know, I just wanted to work on his car constantly, even when his wife was yelling at him that dinner was ready, even when it was the middle of the night. <laughs> I, I did have questions, but how I he know. didn't, like, hear Elizabeth walk up to the car the second time, like, she's not wearing super stealthy shoes, and he's you would think she's making around. enough noise. 
Right. Like he's got the, the radio on, but still, you think he would have noticed someone walking right up his driveway to the car, but he didn't. And now he's dead. So RIP Tom, the car guy. And listen, we are pro like death on this show when it is a device that moves the plot forward. And like, we need Lisa in that Northrop factory or, or plant or whatever. So my notes do say <laughs> who was under the car. Oh, job opening. <laughs> <laughs> and like the camera does rub it in a little bit, right? We get this like one second shot before they cut the, the scene of like the blood starting to trickle out from under yeah. the car, like back down the back down the garage, the concrete. Yeah, so we don't really get Tom's face or, like, such a strong no. uh, view of Tom's face, but we do get a lingering shot on the, his blood. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess we'll take that. All right. Yeah. It's, it's also an unusual thing the show does in that they don't tell us what the mission is for Elizabeth until the very end. Like, yeah. until you see the Northrop sticker on his car, yeah. you don't really know what's going on. Usually, when Philip and Elizabeth are on the mission, we kind of know what the stakes are what they're trying to do and why going in. But in this case, it's more like, why is she here? Why is she looking at this guy? And it's like, Oh, at the very end, you realize yeah. what's happening. Yeah. That is, that is a nice structural thing in this episode for sure. Pour one out for Tom, the car guy. <laughs> All right, Danielle, are you taking us into the cave? I'm taking us into the cave. And since we spoke a lot about children, about family relationships, about this idea of grooming, I thought that we might take Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile with us into the cave. Um, So I want to pull a quote that we have taken from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, just kind of laying the groundwork for what's going on with Rousseau and Emile, and then I'll, I'll build on it from there. So we... The Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy writes, Rousseau's philosophy of education, therefore, is not geared simply at particular techniques that best ensure that the pupil will absorb information and concepts. It is better understood as a way of ensuring that the pupil's character be developed in such a way as to have a healthy sense of self-worth and morality. This will allow the pupil to be virtuous, even in the unnatural and imperfect society in which he lives. The character of Emile begins learning important moral lessons from his infancy through childhood and into early adulthood. His education relies on the tutor's constant supervision. The tutor must even manipulate the environment in order to teach sometimes difficult moral lessons about humility, chastity, and honesty. And I would add to that that Rousseau's Emile, in thinking through this sort of question of like child development and the relationship of uh, the development of the child and the the environment, is also about like the development into a form of citizenship. It's it's a civic education. It's always geared towards the sort of like general will and and the, the morality that's kind of encapsulated in that. And I think that there's a way to think not only about the, these sort of like questions of grooming Kimmy, the question of what to do with Paige, um, questions around even Matthew and Henry, right? Like the role of children and the next generation for all of these different characters, I think comes down to a question of like, well, what are they being guided towards? What are they being trained for? And what is the sort of like, not only moral, but also political value in that kind of training or grooming? So I think Rousseau helps us think about the sort of like long game 
of civic education and thinking through at least Kimmy and Paige in terms of people who are like being quote unquote educated in particular ways towards particular purposes. Brilliant as always. Thank you, Danielle. I, I like this. I like this uh, journey descend into the cave with Emil for a couple of reasons. One is obviously the points you just made. And second is that it really emphasizes how at least Elizabeth understands yeah. Paige becoming a spy for the KGB, yeah. a second generation illegal is her doing the most virtuous in a Rousseau sense, right? Sort of thing that's possible, right? To be a virtuous citizen for Elizabeth is to do what she has done. Right. And Paige could be the ultra version of that, which then right. of course, like raises the broader notion that something like Rousseauian um, virtue or something like that is more yeah. consistent with the more collectivist ideology of the Soviet Union than it would be in the more individualized, right? U.S. Um, yeah. You know, well, at least on the like ideal level, right. Then we could, you know, the practical level is a different thing. I agree with that. And I think there's a way to, I think because Rousseau, I think in a way that slightly differentiates him from other contract theorists like Locke or Hobbes, right. Rousseau's emphasis combines an understanding of liberty and its relationship to equality in a way that is like, I think just it's less, prominent or connected for other contract theorists. And I think that the emphasis on that connection brings Rousseau closer to the collectivist ideology that, that I think you're trying to, to lay out. I would also say, right, like, and this is not in, this is not in Emile, but it informs Emile, the sort of like difference between the general will and the will of all. I think like in thinking about mm. Philip and Elizabeth as like recognizing what's happening and seeing what's what the other is doing to page as like the wrong way to do things or like standing on the wrong side. I think perhaps they, they each consider that themselves to embody, to be embodying something like the general will, like the thing that is right and good and like is supposed to direct the show. Um, and yet like, and the other embodying the will of all, which is like the more self-interested, like power hungry version of it. Like, I think there's a, a way to read their, their war position through that lens too. There's the irony of all of this as well, that of course, Rousseau would never support a civic virtuous <laughs> education for Paige or Kimmy or just, any <laughs> other woman. Right. So there's like, you know, Rousseau, one of the more misogynistic, uh, including in a meal itself. A million percent. And I was also, I'm also laughing at like thinking about like uh, Kimmy and Paige in particular in relation to Emil, because my favorite like thing that happens is not in Emil, but it's like in Emil and Sophie, which is like the unfinished sequel where basically the fact that like Sophie is a woman destroys Emil's whole life. And like Rousseau just blames Sophie yeah. for like every poor choice that Emil has ever made, which is, bonkers in in all forms but like i think further reinforces your point i didn't yeah. think we were gonna get this much mileage out of rousseau honestly <laughs> mike do you or your adorable cat that we're getting like a quarter of the face of have anything you would like to add uh i, I don't think she's read rousseau so. <laughs> oh, that's important that's that's too bad what is your cat's name uh, uh, <laughs> 
Her name is actually Elizabeth. Ah, Ah, incredible. (laughs) I thought you were going to say it was Emil. (laughs) (laughs) But Elizabeth is even better. Yeah. Elizabeth the cat, another welcome presence on Not Quite Great Books. I love a cat with a person name. John's cat's name is Larry, and, like, I love it. I love it so much. Pets with people names are great. Yep, she was. She's older than Elizabeth Jenny, and so she wasn't named after her. <laughs> she was named after Elizabeth Bennett, actually. So nice, nice. We'll take it. All right, theory ship. I've got one. Uh, Go for it. I would like to give. You can tell me, Jenny. You need to edit this out if you want. I would like to give Kimmy Foucault's History of Sexuality, Volume One, <laughs> and I'll leave it there. We don't have to edit it out, but we don't need to elaborate either. Um, I would like to give Yusuf uh, Altusser just so that he can start to like think through the relationship between structure and agency, like in, in a little bit more nuanced terms than the, the, like the bullshit that he spews in his uh, discussion with Scott. (laughs) Yusuf, extremely interpolated, but you know what? So is Philip. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, agree. Maybe Philip could also benefit from a little officer, too. <laughs> Listen, Altusser for everyone. Altusser for all? Uh, oh. We've come to the end. We've come to the end. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Yes, as did we. Wonderful ideas about the Americans. Wonderful meta on the oh. Americans, which speaks to Danielle and I's hearts very much. Uh, a million percent. And yeah. And thank you for the, for the behind the scenes communication and support of the podcast uh, by compiling the dossier and keeping track of the minor characters, which we have mostly been keeping up with uh, as we've been recording season three episodes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and with that, Thanks, as always, to producer Amy. Up next in the feed, um, in two weeks, we'll have The American Season 3, Episode 6, Born Again. Um, and that is uh, that is it from us here on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.